It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So episode 11 in a series. Obviously, if you're just tuning into this series uh, via podcast, uh, there's 10 uh, sessions you need to sort of catch up on. Now, I always desire my sessions to be standalones. If someone were to just encounter one session, that they would hear a truth, and it wouldn't just be dependent upon the previous ones. However, there is something special about a story, especially when you're using a historical time period as a backdrop to fill in a lot of the gaps. You know, when I start talking about firds or Danegelds or shield walls, it actually helps to know what those are. And yet there's terms that are transferable, like king. You know, and we sort of all have a general sense of what a king is, but a king in ancient Anglo-Saxon Britain is a little different than oftentimes what we deem a king. You know, where he sits on his throne and tells all his uh, you know, his people to do the things for him and sort of serve him. A, a king in Alfred's time uh, is going to actually be very, very engaged uh, with his men. And, you know, we, we studied the shield wall. It was a session called the Betrayal of Warfare. And where we're talking about the loyalty and the issues of covenant in their culture, that the greatest crime, the greatest sin in their culture was to break an oath. And there was nothing more damaging to their entire culture. To their, and what you're going to see in the betrayal of warfare is the breaking of an oath, and it literally leads to the devastation of the nation. One man choosing to betray an oath actually devastates the nation, and therefore Alfred is going to have to go into hiding, and he has this little two-acre island in the middle of a swampland called Athelney, where he is going to be tested and proven. He is going to arrive at Athelney, in 878 in January, despairing, weakened. He has been betrayed by multiple nobles in his nation, which is unheard of and unthinkable. But these men chose the preservation of their own skin over the preservation of their king and over their nation. And as a result, you're going to see a great testing period uh, awaken for this young king known as Alfred. So at this time, what is he around? Uh, he was 22 in 71. So add seven more years, so he's 29 years old. Oh, that's, that's pretty appropriate. If you understand my love for the number 29 and you see what's going to happen in his 29th year, I like this. This is, this is good. I just think Job chapter 29. Now I need to add like a Job 29 message to uh, this series. But this is going to be the defining period of his life. It's actually only a few months but it's a few months that are going to literally awaken the man inside of him. And so the last session I gave, which was called The Rise of the Man, that is something that needs to take place in all of us. And this message is sort of the one that flows out of that. It's, it's called The Clash of Shield Walls. And it is this intense engagement that we have entered into as believers when we believe And then we take a step forward to defy the enemy. It's one thing to stand firm and to not give up hope. Okay, and that's where many of us may be. You know, we're on on our Isle of Athelney and all has turned dark, but we're not going to stop believing. It's a whole other thing to then rise up and attack. You see, when you're in a point of weakness, it's really, you know, not what's usually on your mind to attack the enemy. And yet what you're going to see here is so profound. If, if I could turn this into a movie in front of you, it would take you know, about 
hundred million dollars, uh, and you know, which I don't just have you know bursting out of my pockets uh, to do this, and it would be hard to do it in a matter of minutes to show this to you. But what is going to take place is so profound and epic and cinematic in my soul. And of course, the way that uh, Dr. Merkel writes it in his book, The White Horse King, so stirs me. And so as a result, if you're sort of wondering, like, what captured Eric's attention? Well, the whole thing about Alfred engaged me at first because it so parallels our times in which we live. We don't have Vikings, but we have Viking ideology. The same spirits that ruled those Vikings are the same ones that are trying to invade our island here in North America. And they're trying to take control, and they're trying to cow us into subservience. They're trying to bend us. It's sort of like, you know what's best for you, don't you? Stay silent. If you speak, you will see the consequences. They're cowing us into silence. It's a Viking maneuver. It is based on fear. And so as a result, as I study this, it's like, whoa, this is exactly what's happening in our culture. We don't call it Viking invasion. We call it political correctness. And what you see is an invasion of ideology that is attempting to silence the truth. And if you happen to be a holder of truth, well, what do you do with it? Because if you say anything, life's going to turn pretty sharply on you. And you're going to have difficulties and challenges that you could avoid if you just walk in line with Guthrum. And so Guthrum is swept into town. Wolfare has betrayed Alfred. Alfred is in hiding, but Alfred is rising up, and that's what the rise of the man was. You see this vigor inside of him. You see this willingness to do whatever it takes, but he hasn't done anything yet, right? He's going on these raids, and he's, he's studying Guthrum's movements. Okay, so I want to build from here. We're, in, we're, we're heading into the spring months of 878, and so we're right around the Passover time uh, and in the Jewish calendar, which is, as it says in the Old Testament, uh, the time when kings go forth to battle. Uh, I can't help but bring that up, because Jesus is going to go forth to battle in the spring, Passover, and that's why it's such a parallel. And so what you see is, there's a way in which kings are supposed to function in their lands. And it's in the spring that you're going to see the king rise up. And of course, that's what we see with Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> the Clash of Shield Walls, part 11. I couldn't help it. This isn't, uh, I, have, I have official notes that I'm building for this series, by the way. And as I go through it, uh, you, you haven't seen them. We're not printing them off. They'll, they'll be available when I get the whole series done, then all the notes will be uh, available for it. And this little quote isn't in the notes, because it was in the last session. It just happens to be one of my favorite quotes. And so I just found an excuse to stick it in, and I like this guy's name, Archibald Primrose, uh, the Earl of Rosebery. There are junctures in the affairs of men when what is wanted is a man. Not treasures, not fleets, not legions, but a man. The man of the moment, the man of the occasion, the man of destiny, whose spirit attracts and unites and inspires whose capacity is congenial to the crisis, whose powers are equal to the convulsion, the child and the outcome of the storm. So this was originally spoken of William Wallace, but I'm going to say that's Alfred. Technically, if you really want a big picture view, that's Jesus. But that's what Jesus is going to do in all of his men and women. He is going to 
do something. He is going to stir within them, in and through travesty, in and through tragedy, in and through difficulty, in and through trial, a robust strength. We get stronger in the midst of difficulty, not in avoiding difficulty. The greatest growth points in my life are in the hardest moments in my life. And so if you were to look at the terrain of my life and you were to see difficulty, you're also going to see a spike of growth. And when life is easy, I'm not going to grow the same. I just grow at sort of a nominal pace then. However, when you hit difficulty, you spike in your growth. So as a result, technically, those of us that want to grow up and grow strong, what should we embrace? Trials of many kinds. Because those trials of many kinds are incredible growth opportunities. And isn't that what we're after? Don't we want to grow up and grow strong? The goal of the enemy, to cow you through fear and intimidation. To convince you that there is nothing that you can do to change things. So it's hard, when I'm giving a story on Alfred, it's easy to just sort of swing back into an ancient civilization and just nod along and go, yes, that's exactly what the Vikings are doing to Alfred. There's nothing you can do to change this, okay? Your nation is lost. Just, you know, there, there's better solutions other than attempting to fight back, Alfred, because that's impossible. There is no way that you're going to be able to do anything. And by the way, Alfred is on this island. He's lost control of his nation. He has no communication with the other uh, thanes in his, uh, in his nation. So he has no communication system. How is he going to even let anyone know he's alive? How is he going to gather together a war machine? How is he going to do this? Well, that's, what do you think? Who's speaking that to him? You could say Guthrum, but the enemy is speaking that to him. In other words, it's like, you have no hope here. And guess what is coming and approaching the southern shorelines of uh, Wessex? Uh, a massive army of one, again, one of uh, Ragnar, uh, Harry Breaches, remember him? One of his sons is coming with this massive horde, and they're going to finish Wessex off. Okay, so if you saw that, and you're in Alfred's position on your little two-acre parcel without anything, is it reasonable just to give up, to surrender, to escape, to flee? I mean, wouldn't it make sense to just, you know, turn over, you know, th this whole idea of, you know, trying to fight this and just give up? It would make logical sense. However, he doesn't do that. And this is precisely where I want to put your soul. You have areas of your life where the enemy wants to cow you into giving up. You've been trying to overcome that one weakness in your life for how long? Mm-hmm. Don't you think it's about time you give up at that? You've been trying to have good communication with this one person in your life, you know, have a good relationship with your, with your parents or maybe your spouse, whatever it is, and it's like you're, you're struggling. Should you just give up? Should you just forsake the, the business in the first place? There are so many areas of our life where we, if, if I were to be able to take my finger and stick it on there, you'd recognize, whoa, it's true. Yeah, I believe God can do things in this area, but this area, yeah, I, I, I've tried for so long. And, you know, Ub's armies, that's the son of Ragnar. Uh, Ub, uh, could you imagine having that name? Uh, Ub is showing up with his multitude of, of, of warriors, Viking warriors. I mean, there, well, there's nothing I can do. You know that Ub is going to be totally devastated. It's an incredible story that I'm not going into, but let me just you know, give you the hint of that when you stand firm, Ub is a fire alarm. 
that is announcing a fire that doesn't exist. And this is what the enemy is going to do. It's like, eh, eh, eh. When he sees you moving forward, he is going to make a lot of noise. So remember Goliath. What's Goliath's tactic? What's well, a Viking tactic? Or you could say the Viking tactic is a Goliath tactic. Technically, Goliath's tactic is just Satan's tactic. Okay, if we're going to get down to brass tacks. It's fear and intimidation. So of course he has something going for him, being as tall and as big as he is, right? And so he's going to come in to the middle of the valley of Elah, and he is going to stand there, the champion of Gath, and he's going to begin to boast. And there's a king on the other side named King Saul. And you'd think that King Saul, if I were to say, what's a king supposed to do in this situation? Did King Saul make the right choice? What was he doing? He was cowering. You see, this is the whole goal of the Goliath uh, maneuver. The whole goal is to intimidate. However, there are kings that rise up and there's kings that sit down. And what you want to see stir inside of you is the king that rises up because he's known as King Jesus. King Jesus doesn't take Goliath's boasts sitting down. So if the enemy is boasting over your life in any area, you know what King Jesus is going to do, right? He's going to say, is there not a cause? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God? You see, that's the right response. So listen to this, 1 Samuel 17, 44. The Philistine said to David, come to me. And I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Now, would you like your body to be fed uh, to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field? No, that isn't really our design for our life. And so if we don't want that to happen, what's the opposite? Run for your life. Who wants to mess with this guy? Okay, this is a tactic of the enemy. It always has been. Taunting, speaking, doom, prophesying darkness and dark outcomes over your life. By the way, God doesn't do that. God is not prophesying doom and gloom over your life. He actually has a plan for you. It's a plan of hope. It's a plan of victory. But you need to trust him as your commander-in-chief and follow him out of the Isle of Athelney. You have to move out of that marshy territory and actually step against the enemy. This is the hard maneuver of soul. It is really hard when you have been brought to that place of lowness and you feel so weak and the enemy appears so strong to actually defy that and to rise up. What would a good king do in this situation? So I'll give you some options and you can sort of choose which one you think would be a good king's response. Run, wall in and fortify, or how about this? Attack. Who, what, what king in their right mind is going to attack? Well, you could study great kings throughout history, and what you're going to see is in the darkest moments, they smile. Like some of the famous quotes in, in war history. I mean, they're really good. When you get a good general who knows how to laugh at the most impossible situations, uh, and you know, they, like we have them right where we want them, and they're surrounded. You know, it's like now we can hit them on every side. And it's the opposite vantage point of the weak, you know, where it's just like, hey, let's go get them, boys. Whichever way we go, we're hitting enemy. Let's go for it. Remember David. So David isn't going to be encouraged, and neither will you. You know, there's a voice that is immediately going to come at you, and it even comes from inside, okay? It's the Saul voice. It's the firstborn life. It's the flesh voice. 
And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth and he a man of war from his youth. Okay, whatever the reason is, you know, you could imagine with uh, Alfred, uh, you have no men. You have no power. You've ne- look at his winning streak. Uh, look at Guthrum's winning streak over Alfred. Alfred is lost, 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 and lost. Eight straight losses. Isn't that enough of a convincing argument to say, you are not able to go against Guthrum? And I could give you quite the list of reasons why it is a bad idea. Okay, this is the voice. The moment you even decide to stand up, you get that voice. 1 Samuel 17, 37. What does David say to Saul? The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the paw. See, it should be paw. In the translation, that would just make so much sense because it's like this beast, right? from the paw or the hand of this Philistine. He's no different. He's no different. My God has proven to me that when I stand, he backs it up. And so I am fully confident as I step against this, this man beast. 1 Samuel 17, 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You see, the secret of David is that he knows the name in which he fights. You see, it is totally irrational what David is doing, unless you recognize that David sees a greater army. See, he's just not just a single shepherd boy. He's fighting on behalf of the Lord of hosts. And have you ever seen the Lord of hosts? Have you seen what type of soldier uh, you know, he brings to the table, you know, as what type of army backs him. Okay, In other words, David sees something, and he knows that this giant is nothing in light of that. You have to have that eyesight. David would not be cowed. He foreshadowed an even greater king to come, Jesus. The story of David and Goliath, as I will go through if you're in the training, I'm going to go through that next Wednesday, I think. I'm gonna, it's called Five Smooth Stones. Whew powerful stuff, guys, when you start to realize the thinking of David, the approach of David, what was taking place in that situation, and how it parallels the cross. So Guthrum, Guthrum is our evil Viking king who really has a thing against Alfred. He hates Alfred. Why? Alfred is the only one in all of this island of Britain that has stood up against the Vikings. And he really bothers Guthrum. And now he's been like going on these raids and just aggravating Guthrum to no end. Guthrum is actually starting to get scared. If this was a movie, that's why I, w- I wish I could somehow show this to you in movie form. Guthrum, if you were to see his private life and his private thoughts, he's like, get this man! And he's starting to like, lose it. It's like screws are starting to come out, and he's he is, uh, starting to, to lose that sane, strong, kingly position because Alfred is getting to him. Alfred will not stop. Alfred is going after Guthrum. Does that even make sense? Guthrum, I thought, was going after Alfred. Yeah, why is it that suddenly Guthrum feels hunted? Isn't that good? Isn't that a great storyline here? I mean, this is, this is good stuff. So here's the question. Guthrum, like Goliath, has stood in the midst of Wessex, sort of boasting. You know, at this time in, in early spring, of 878, you have a Goliath who's standing out there going, hey, can anyone fight me? 
Anyone have the guts to fight me? And there's this little teeny guy named Alfred who rises up and says, is there not a cause? Is there a young king like David willing to stand up and do something about it? So Dr. Merkel says, Guthrum was no longer interested in a quick seizing of the Danegeld from Wessex. He wanted to rule the kingdom unrivaled. What's causing him problems? This Alfred character won't go away. Someone kill Alfred. Get him for me. And yet they can't. Instead, Alfred keeps killing his guys that go to get him. And so as a result, you see the tension building in the storyline. Have we become students of the cowing culture? Now, most of us wouldn't call you know, our culture a cowing culture, but you know, just have a different phraseology for it. What is our culture attempting to do? It's trying to cancel out your voice. It's trying to nullify the truth. It has a direct agenda. If you study cancel culture, if you study the mindset out there, anything that is a derivative of a Judeo-Christian worldview is arch nemesis of the cancel culture. Therefore, any view, it's sort of like you have this Wessex, Anglo-Saxon, now you have the Vikings coming in. Anything that reminds Guthrum of Anglo-Saxon Wessex, it goes. Any of its Christian ideals, plunder the churches, rape the women, harm the kids, it is the exact opposite mentality of a Christian culture. He came into a Christian culture and he wants to ravage it. He wants to silence its Christianity. He detests it. Okay, I don't know, is this a parallel or am I just imagining things? So have we become students of the cowing culture? Because the, because the cowing culture has its professors and they go out and they teach you all the ways that you can live at peace within the cowing culture. And there's a certain rule book to it. I don't know if you guys have read the rules today, but back then they would have had similar rules. So let's look at the rules for 878 and you'll recognize they're very similar for 2021. Don't speak against Guthrum's rule. If you say anything even against cancel culture, you're the problem. It's, it's thick and it's dense. And so if you want to maintain peace, don't speak against Guthrum's rule. He's a Viking. We're not Vikings. He doesn't have a rightful ownership of this. He stole it. Uh, we had a betrayal here. Alfred's the rightful king. Oh, no, don't, don't, don't say that. Don't say that. I mean, you'll be tortured. I mean, it'll go bad for you. They'll kill you immediately if you say something like that. Don't question anything about Guthrum's rule. Don't try and turn anyone from following Guthrum's rule. Don't try and convert anyone over to Alfred. You know those people that are like loyalists to Guthrum now? They may not like Guthrum, but they're going to be loyal. Why? For peace. You know, they want to keep their head on. And definitely don't attempt to fight against Guthrum's rule. If you desire peace, then don't question Guthrum's plundering, kidnapping, raping, and pillaging. This guy is wreaking evil across the countryside, but you can't say anything against it. If you do, you're next. Did I hear a peep? Did I hear someone say something against what Guthrum's doing? Because if I hear any of you question what he is doing, you're next. And so what happens? Well, everyone just goes silent. You see, we're being cowed. If you stay compliant and subservient to Guthrum's agenda, maybe you will be allowed to live. 
Chippenham, I don't know if you guys remember Chippenham. Chippenham is where Alfred was for Christmas. Okay, so remember the 12th night, uh, what, what, that, what that was, January 6th or something, 878, when Guthrum is going to come in, Bull, uh, you have the betrayal of Bulware, and it's like, oh, this is terrible. And however, that's Chippenham. So guess where Guthrum makes his throne in his kingdom? Chippenham, almost to defy uh, Alfred. It's like, oh, if this is where you're going to call your seat, I'm going to make it my seat. Okay, takes like a sacred place and makes it his kingdom. Chippenham now belongs to Guthrum. Don't threaten his throne. Okay, right now, just North America, you know, the, the devil's making it very clear. All of this heritage that you guys think you have, you know, this Christian heritage, you know, sending forth all these missionaries, it doesn't belong to Christ anymore. This nation belongs to the devil. Accept it. Ooh. What are we going to do about this, guys? I mean, because if we say something, it could go really bad for us. Is there an Alfred? Is there someone who's willing to not be cowed in such a time as this and to rise up and speak truth? You see, our battle isn't against flesh and blood. My goal isn't to actually build a shield wall and come knocking against some politicians. My desire is to build a shield wall as the church and take down the powers of hell. Now that's of interest to me. Alfred is obviously a recalcitrant student. Something's wrong with Alfred. He's not getting it because Guthrum is speaking a very plain language to him. You know, he's like, hey, flee, get out of the country or give up. Hey, I'll give you riches. Come to me. Come to me, Alfred. I won't kill you like I've killed all the other kings. I'll use you, and you can be one of my pawns, and I can give you sort of you know, a, a, an authority structure underneath mine, and I'll show everyone that you're my puppet. See, Guthrum has, oh, he has a very generous heart towards Alfred, and he's ready to work with him, just like the devil's always ready to work with you. All we need is a little compromise. Remember Jesus? No compromise. The devil is going to tempt him in the wilderness. No compromise. Jesus will not give an inch. So Alfred's a bad student uh, to this whole cowing culture thing. He refused to be cowed. What's he after? He's after Chippenham. <laughs> I'm taking that back. This is literally how audacious he is. He has no army. He has nothing. He's, he's against this powerhouse, probably the greatest military force in the world at the time, and he has nothing, and he's like, I'm taking it back. Okay, I don't know if you guys see how good this is, but this is a great movie. That's why I'm saying if I could somehow get a movie score behind this, as I'm saying, you could visualize it, it's that good. So here's a word for us today, adamant. Adamant, by definition, is set, determined, unable to be cowed refusing to be persuaded or to change one's mind. If you're adamant about something, you're doing it. And then all these arguments come in, nope, I'm doing it. But, 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 but what about this, what about this? I'm doing it. That's adamant, okay? So this word is actually going to be used throughout history. The Greek version of it is atomus, which ironically is translated as diamond. So the word atomus in the Greek is actually the word for diamond. So if you were to look up the word for diamond in the Greek, it's atomus. 
And it comes from this. It's the hardest material in the earth. There is nothing harder than diamond. Diamond will cut through anything else. Okay, It's the hardest substance. And this is what the word is. And this is what the Spirit of God wants to make your forehead. Ezekiel 3, 8 through 9. Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces and thy forehead strong against their foreheads. As an adamant harder than flint have I made thy forehead. Fear them not. Neither be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. So this is in a time of great travesty and great compromise within the Jewish culture. Okay, Very similar, uh, just a different time period. And you're going to see this picture. To the Jew, every part of the body has a meaning. The forehead is a place of decision. And so as a result, when God is saying, I want to give you a forehead of adamant that is firmer than even flint, this is something that there is nothing in the world can break through it. It is decided, it is resolute, and it doesn't matter what arguments come, this is the hardest substance in all the universe. It is adamus. It is a diamond forehead. It is a helmet so strong, it doesn't matter what blows against it, it keeps walking. The spiritual forehead, the place of declared defiance. I don't know if you've ever noticed in Scripture that the forehead is a fascinating location. You know that things happen on foreheads. And we don't usually think about it, but you know, like a a crown is worn on a forehead. Isn't that fascinating? It's, It's a symbol and it rests right there. And oftentimes the key jewel will be placed, maybe even a diamond, right in the front. Isn't that just a a fascinating thought? And so a diamond on the forehead is actually not that unusual, especially when you're thinking of a king. However, it's also a place where you could say of determination and decision. So what is happening in this region of the mind is, of course, very, very important for everything you're doing. Now, if you're a student in here, we've taught on faith. And all that, is making, all that is taking place up in this thought life. Faith is, is actually an exercise of that mind to determine with resolution that God is true. That what he has said is true. And I believe it. And so this is all to do with the forehead. So look at what the devil is after. Revelation 13, 16 through 17. So there's a beast is going to refer to another beast, or the second beast, is going to cause all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Right hand, symbol of, a, of, of strength and control. Forehead, place of decision. Isn't that fascinating? And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, that usually gives us the EBGBs, right, when, when you read that. However, what you're going to recognize is the devil wants your forehead. He's like, come on, think like me. You understand, right? You stand with this Jesus character and you realize that I'm going to cut you to pieces. I'm going to make your life misery. So, hey, side with me. You can buy, sell, you know, you can live as you want, If you don't make a decision for me, stick my name on your forehead, I'm coming after you, and my work will be a quick work. Do you feel it? He's trying to cow you. He's trying to intimidate you. He's after your forehead. So what does God want? 
He wants a forehead marked Jesus. <laughs> I'm with Jesus. Sorry, there's no space for another name here. I've already decided. I'm adamant in that position. I don't care what you do to me. I'm not stopping. In fact, I'm not even running from you. I'm going after you. I'm going after Chippenham. You can't do that. That's the beast. Guthrum's a pretty good picture of the beast. He's a pretty bad dude, right? And Alfred's going after him. You know what has happened to every other king that has decided to fight or to linger around? They were tortured and sacrificed unto the gods of the Vikings. I don't know about you, but if, if I was a king, you could just imagine that thought going through your head, going, you know what, I don't think I'm not interested in this. It's that cartoon sound of, you know, when they just leave and there's some smoke there. Look at this, Ezekiel 9.4, and the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads. So this is a godly mark. In other words, mark the foreheads of those who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. There was devastation. There was uh, abominations taking place in this city of Jerusalem, God's city. This is God's territory, and yet something is taking place there that is not God. Put a mark, O angel, on the forehead of those that see that abomination and sigh and cry. And God's going to wipe out everyone that doesn't have a mark on their forehead. <laughs> Obviously, this part of the body is very critical. The devil wants it, and God wants it. So I'm just going to lay that out there for you and just say, hey, just submit your forehead to God, okay? Be marked by the Most High. Christianity is, not, is primarily an offensive action, not a defensive struggle. Most of us have spent our life on an island of Athelney in a defensive position, hiding out from the enemy, just hoping he doesn't find us. That's not how Christianity works. Christianity, I'm not saying that there isn't defensive dimensions to Christianity, but primarily Christianity is an offensive thing. However, we have not grown up around that version of Christianity, and as a result, when I say that, you're, you're like, I, I don't, I don't uh, resonate with that one. What are we supposed to do, go and like fight the Vikings? Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. You see, we have been given weapons of warfare that are mighty to the pulling down of Viking strongholds. We have been given weapons that can literally tear down Guthrum. Guthrum is scared. You see, you can't get inside of his bedroom and see his thoughts. However, Guthrum knows that Alfred is doing something, and Alfred's confidence is causing Guthrum grief and sleepless nights. Guthrum still has the public boast, and he mocks Alfred. However, it's getting to Guthrum. So we are supposed to take it to the enemy, not the other way around. Define self-preservation, running through the adamant checklist. Okay, so we have a potential and a propensity to self-preserve. The devil knows it. The devil knows that our natural man inclination is to preserve our own skin, which is why when you hear about Guthrum invading your country, you actually immediately can begin to think, okay, how can I survive in this situation? Have you ever, you know, of course, we, we all went through uh, 2020 and the uh, toilet paper shortage, right? And it was embarrassing, you know, to, to realize that everyone starts thinking about themselves when things get short. Have you ever noticed that, have you ever seen like a long line at a, at a gas station? 
And what do long lines at gas stations oftentimes cause other people to do that have no idea what even the news is to get in line? Because every, everyone's thinking, boy, I don't want to be without. There must be something going on. So it's like blind leading blind, the selfish leading the selfish. And it actually can break apart a culture. It can. And we almost saw it last year when everyone starts thinking about themselves, actually we have shortages of things and we can't function normally. And so families like the Ludies, which have a lot of people in it, suddenly don't have toilet paper. And they're Googling uh, other options for toilet paper. <laughs> what a weird situation that is. And yet that is the repercussions of difficulty coming into a culture and everyone self-preserving. There's far better ways to do it, and that's to behave as Christians, which doesn't self-preserve. Do you know that the Christian doesn't even consider it? It's not even one of the options on the list. Oh, and then self-preserve, check. It's not there. So let's look at this. This is, I'm going to call this the adamant checklist, where we determine, we have a checklist of what to defy. There are certain things that we need to say, nope, 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 to. Let's go through that. Say no to the invite to the land of comfort. So... Alfred has an invite. All he has to do is get on a boat and flee to Europe. And Europe sort of symbolizes at this time, because all the Viking attention is on the island of Britain. If he just goes to Europe, his life is immediately calmer. It's immediately more peaceful. And most of us have an escape hatch like that, that the enemy will point at and have a big sign near and say, escape here. And so we need to defy the escape hatch. We need to defy that invite to the land of comfort. And ironically, the land of comfort isn't going to have what you think it's going to have. Whenever you sell out to go to the land of comfort, it actually never helps you. It's not a comfort. However, in your trial or your Isle of Athelney, it sure does feel like it will be. You need to say no to any payoffs, compromises, or sellouts. I mean, all you have to do is humble yourself before Guthrum and just become his slave. Okay, he'll ask you to do some difficult things, but hey, you'll at least come out with your life. Oh no. Uh-uh. We are going to live boldly for the truth and not become subservient to any other master but King Jesus. And so we need to defy this as an option. It's not on the table. The answer is no. How about this one? Defy all past experiences. Don't you think that Alfred has a lot knocking on his experience door? Uh, so let's, let's count up your last eight battles, uh, and Alfred could say, but we did have Ashdown. Mm-hmm, we did have Ashdown. Remember that? That was sort of accidental. Remember when your brother was praying long and then finally shows up after that, and that totally surprised the Vikings? However, we all know, Alfred, that that was a total accident. The only battle that's ever been won against the Vikings since, you know, 865 in the last 13 years, was an accident. What are your last uh, eight uh, battles? Loss, 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 and what, let's see, another loss. Now you have no army, then you were at least king and you could call your thirds together and you could have up to 10,000 men, but what do you have now? Oh, what, let's see, let's count them. Oh, is that about 32? Oh, no! This is ridiculous, Alfred. You need to recognize you have no hope. You need to be a bad student to the cowing culture. I always have hope. 
My eyes have been opened to see the mountains filled with horses and chariots of fire all around. You need to defy all fear. Fear is another thing that is going to come upon us, and it came upon this culture in a heavy-duty way mid-March of 2020. It made its move. And many of us in here understand, we felt it in the air. It was a very palpable and real thing. When they start using words like pandemic, okay, that is a cowing technique. And as a result, what we have a tendency to do is preserve our life in such moments like that instead of boldly going out and sharing Jesus with others. Defy all fear. Well, there's some serious fear going around right here. These evil Vikings make sport with bodies of kings and sacrifice them unto their gods. That's a little worse than a pandemic, by the way, <laughs> and dying you know, while trying to get into a hospital and getting one of the ventilators. That's a little more extreme. And yet you're going to see Alfred defy it. Defy all those petty excuses to stay put. You see, right now, Guthrum can't get him. He has a fortress on this little swamp island. He's fine. How about you just sort of stay put, Alfred? Just sort of cherish the fact that you're still alive. Defy all those petty excuses to stay put. Maybe Guthrum will just go away. Maybe I don't need to fight. He knows what he's called to do. And how about this one? Defy anything and everything that stalls your forward movement in obedience. I don't care what it is. If it's trying to get me to not go. Remember Jesus when Peter's like, no, you can't die. I refuse to accept that. He says, get thee behind me, Satan. Whoa, that's a pretty, pretty strong statement. That's exactly what Alfred is basically going to say here. Anyone that tries to talk me out of this, anyone that talks me out of taking back this kingdom and going after Chippenham, get thee behind me, Satan. I know what I'm supposed to do right now. The action of spiritual defiance, taking back the territory the enemy has claimed. So you're a Christian with the authority of Christ Jesus, and yet the enemy may have claimed territory in your soul, in your life, in your practical day, in your relationships. And so what do you need to do? You need to pull an Alfred. You need to take it back. So your time. It's funny because we can spend time on all sorts of funny things, and yet what it oftentimes is is it's a Viking thing. We're spending our time the way the Vikings want us to spend our time. No, no. Our time needs to be taken back for the king of kings. Your thoughts. You have some Viking thoughts in there. Those Viking thoughts don't belong in the mind of a Christian. Take that back. That's territory. Guthrum should not have it. Your patterns of living. You ever notice that oftentimes we'll develop patterns of life which if, if you were to say, are those patterns of the kingdom of heaven? Like if Jesus were in your body, was that what he would do with his day? And you recognize that the enemy has come in and sabotaged certain patterns in your life that are very unhealthy patterns, but you've just done them for so many years that it's just you. Or should it be? Is that a Viking pattern? Take it back for Jesus. Your dreams and ambitions. Some of us can unwittingly have Viking dreams and ambitions. How did that get in there? They're selfish. That's how a Viking thinks. A Viking thinks power, glory, money, riches, sexual satisfaction. Yep, I just described the Viking culture. Some of us have Viking dreams and ambitions. That's territory that God needs to take back. Pull an Alfred and get it. 
your purpose, your sexuality, your appetites, your tongue, your talents, these can be territories in our life, practically, where Guthrum has seized it. You, you're the betrayer in this situation. You're like, yes, for this, you know, this much money, 30 pieces of silver, I will give you my sexuality. Right? Little did you know what you were doing. You're dealing with darkness. You cannot deal with darkness. Don't take its money. Don't take its sales pitch. Don't be cowed. Take it back. So right now, you may feel weak, sort of like, how in the world can I do that, though? Well, this is what the kingdom of heaven is made of right here. The reason I'm so attracted to this story is it's like dripping with picture of the kingdom of heaven. This is David against Goliath. This is Jesus against the power of sin. This is everything we follow in the train of. Alfred's actions of Guthrum defiance. So April 15th, 878, actually all we know is it's mid-April. They're guessing at a lot of dates here, but we know that it is somewhere right around Passover, which was very, very important to Alfred, and he is going to begin to build something, build a response, a defiance against Guthrum up until what's called Whit Sunday historically, but it's Pentecost. Okay, so Passover to Pentecost, which is the season that we would see spiritually as being the season of recovery, the season of defiance, the season of crushing the serpent head, okay? This is when Alfred says, uh-huh, it's right here, and he's going to actually purposely pick dates because the, the Vikings picked dates that were Christ, in the Christian holiday season because the Christians were going to be celebrating and they knew that they would not have their defenses up. So what he's gonna do is he's gonna pick dates and basically take it back. He's gonna take Pentecost as his big attack date. And he's gonna say, this is the day when God gave his people power. Let's go, guys. I mean, that, that's pretty cool, you have to admit. So Dr. Merkel says it this way, the cunning that Alfred had lacked, he began to learn in Athelney. From here, he tracked the Viking king, learning to predict his movements and how to react effectively and counter his tactics. So this is sort of one of those rocky get-in-shape scenes, you know, where he's like doing his sit-ups and his pull-ups, doing impossible. That's, what, that's what's happening here. This is like the montage scene where we're going to go through and we're going to sort of create the backdrop of Alfred getting in shape. He practiced moving his own men unseen throughout Guthrum's newly occupied territory. He also began to construct an effective but entirely secret network of communication between himself and the earldoms who were still loyal to him among the shired firds of Wessex. Isn't that cool? Secret communications. I almost wanted to call this one secret communication just because I like the phrase, but I didn't think that would work as well. For Guthrum, the situation had become surprisingly more and more difficult. See, that's part of the montage, is Guthrum pounding the table and looking at his men, and they're like, like that. And see, that's part of the, the, the montage scene. He had been a master at commanding an invading army, but occupying a foreign nation while being savagely harassed by a resolute underground force was a skill in which he was terribly unpracticed. To truly control Wessex, Guthrum needed to conquer Alfred and his small band of guerrilla warriors who seemed to be everywhere and nowhere. See, guys, you guys are starting to feel this, right? You're entering into the storyline. I mean, this is good. In the middle of the month of April, when the men of Wiltshire received a secret communication from Alfred summoning them for battle. Can't you just imagine that moment? They don't even know that their king is alive, but they're starting to hear these rumors of like raids and people are like, Alfred's out there, he's fighting back. 
And then it gives this like swell of hope, but people don't know what to do with it. They don't want to say it because all the Guthrum authorities are like, huh, what? What's that whispering going on over there? Nothing, nothing at all. And then like, yeah. So Alfred is going to send a secret communication to summon the men of Wiltshire to battle. They received the call to arms with intense joy and thanksgiving at the chance to rid themselves of the pagan oppressors. The call was passed on to Somerset and Hampshire as well, shires whose earldoms, earldomen had remained faithful to Alfred throughout Guthrum's conquest. As the countryside of Wessex shook off the death grip of the English winter, as the frost and bone-biting chill fled from the climbing sun and lengthening days, as the floor of the woods sprang to life with the budding of the daffodils and bluebells, as, of all, nature, as, as all of nature declared with finality the death of winter, Every man of Wessex capable of carrying a weapon into combat began his preparations for one more perilous clash with the Viking hordes. Okay, so I don't know if we're emerging out of the, uh, the montage scene, and now it's like we're sort of beginning to feel this freshness, this hope, because it's been winter. This whole test has happened during winter, and now suddenly we have spring the time when kings go forth to battle. And you can just sort of feel it. You hear a bird chirping in the air. You see the sort of the fragrant flower bl blossoming. You're like, ah, yes. We just need a new beginning, a new life. The following days were filled with the necessary task of equipping themselves for the fight, a task made all the more difficult by the need to hide the preparations from the Danish occupiers. Swords and axe blades were, were sharpened, chain burnies mended, spears fashioned, and hearts hardened. The message that had been passed on commanded the Ferds to gather at Egbert Stone on the southern border of Wiltshire, east of Selwood Forest. That is not Sherwood Forest. That is Selwood Forest. It's sort of like Alfred and Robin Hood have some similarities, though. But he's going to meet in Selwood Forest at Egbert Stone. So Egbert is a king that is going to have this masterful victory, you know, I don't know what it was, like 80 years before. So he's like the great-great-grandfather of Alfred. So it's Egbert and so he's going to meet at Egbert Stone symbolically. It's a place of victory. By gathering the Ferds at Wessex at Egbert Stone on Whit Sunday, that's Pentecost, Alfred drew from the sense of hope and divine purpose that the season from Easter to Whit Sunday regularly evoked among the Christian churches. By this point, most of the men of Wessex had not seen the king for some time and had only been aware of his continued resistance against the Vikings through the legends and fanciful tales about the king's exploits that were being circulated throughout the Wessex villages. When the noblemen and their assembled armies finally gathered together at Egbert Stone and saw the king in person, it was, as one of Alfred's friends and biographers put it, as if the king had been restored to life after a terrible tribulation. Guthrum had indeed been alerted to the gathering firds of Wessex and had ordered his armies to prepare to intercept the approaching Saxon throng. Though the Viking king was surprised to hear that the outcast ruler had suddenly surfaced, and even more astonished to learn that Alfred was leading a full-strength army out of the Wessex wastelands. Uh, I like it. There was a corresponding relief that he would finally be able to face the king in open battle instead of endlessly searching the fens of Wessex for the elusive warrior. As Alfred led the Saxon army up the ridgeline, the fortified ruins of Bratton camp finally came into view. In front of those ditchworks, ditchwork defenses stood the Viking army already formed in their menacing shield wall, hungrily beckoning the Wessex king forward to try one last time to drive them from his borders. Alfred halted the march and gave a hasty command to his men to draw their weapons and take their places in the Saxon shield wall. 
As the Wessex soldiers clambered into their attacking formation, the king earnestly exhorted them. He oversaw the formation of the wall, ensuring the shields of the front line were tightly overlapped and firmly held. But knowing that the strength of the shield wall depended on more than the strength of grip, this is a good moment, guys. This is like a close-up, okay? You're going to zoom in, and you're going to see Alfred in one of those moments where maybe he even stops and is going to choke up a little, but he's going to hold himself together, right, because he's the king. But it's so meaningful because he's seen his thanes all together, and he's going to give them a kingly speech. He sought to strengthen their courage and resolve with words, with his words. He reminded them of their vows to their ring giver and exhorted them to stand true to their bold promises. He derided the cowardice of every man who had ever run from a shield wall. He extolled those faithful thanes who preferred to lie slain on the field of slaughter rather than be found among those who broke the shield wall and ran. He promised wealth and glory to the men who stood resolutely by his side in the coming onslaught. And he urged them to place their deep deepest trust in their merciful and mighty God. After thus exhorting his men, Alfred locked himself into the tightly woven shield wall and advanced with his men toward the gore-hungry Viking army. Uh, You guys starting to lean in here? I mean, this is good. This is good. Put on that adamant helmet of salvation. You You guys do know that we've been given a helmet of salvation. Set your face against the Viking invasion and let's take back some territory. Men! Helmets on! This is what we as the church are being commanded right now. Put the helmet on. You do know who your Savior is. You do know that there's only one to serve. You do know that everything that is attempting to cow you is attempting to cow you up here. So put the helmet of the Word of God truly on. Believe right now. Trust your God. He is able. He's in the shield wall with you. And take the helmet of salvation, Ephesians 6, 17. You take one step forward and all hell breaks loose. Boy, Guthrum is not happy right now. Who do they think they are? Don't they realize that we rule Wessex? Who is this that would dare stand against us? Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Can't you just hear Goliath's boast right now? Pressing against the Viking noise. They are going to make some noise right now. Okay, so guys, we're in the shield wall. We have our helmets on. Alfred's with us. It's March. You don't move very quick when you're in a shield wall. And they're not moving very quick either, but they're already waiting in their shield wall. They're waiting. They're saying, oh, you want to come and have a little piece of this? They're fortified in. They're in the position of strength because they're on the defensive. Alfred has to take the offensive, which is the harder position. So 60 feet out, you know what starts? The flighting begins. Now, that isn't something we do today. Uh, But flighting is an ancient tactic, and it was very practiced. And it's basically insults and put-downs and scare tactics. That's what it is, okay? So the Danish throng began to shout across the open ground between the two closing shield walls, screaming out their prophecies of a coming Viking victory. They recounted their exploits throughout the already conquered shires of Wessex and related their opinion of the Saxon women. They promised to feed the flesh of their fallen adversaries to the hungry ravens circling overhead, the emissaries of their god, Odin. You ever had this? The moment you begin to march forward, what does the enemy do? He starts the flighting. About 60 feet out, you know, 
You're, 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 you're trying to get the guts up to, to fight this battle. That's why you need your helmet on. You need to remember who's in the shield wall with you. This is pretty intense. The flighting is like, I don't want to be fed to the ravens. Keep the helmet on. Stay focused. You do know that your king can't lose. 40 feet out, the flying spears start flying. So everyone has a spear, but they also have three flying spears. And that's just the tactic in battle. And so 40 feet out, whew, start the flying spears. And so could you imagine, the whole sky is going to basically turn black for a little bit because how many spears are going to be flying? And so as a result, you know, if you're just watching one spear, you can just defend against it or just move out of the way. However, when there's thousands of spears coming, it's not like you're going to... It's pretty intense, okay? And it's a fear tactic as well. It, it takes you... At, what they're trying to do is break apart your shield wall. They're trying to break apart your covenant relationship with your king. When the soaring flock of spears landed on the shield wall below, a cacophony of bellows and screams erupted as the mortally wounded fell to the ground thrashing, spitted, pretty stiff language there, by the slender shafts of ash. Of course, many of the men managed to block the incoming spears with their raised shields, but the falling shafts still carried enough momentum that it would drive through the wooden shield and stick up to a foot out the other side, frequently splitting the arm that held the shield as well. This is intense. This is just 40 feet out. We haven't even gotten into the battle yet. And then 20 feet out. Oh, no. The berserkers start sprinting towards you. You guys ever studied the berserkers? I wouldn't necessarily encourage you to study it. This can be your study of it, and I even trim this down. <laughs> this is like, oh, this is so demonic. And they are doing their best to harass you and break apart your confidence. 20 feet out, they're going to release all hell on you. So, but the Vikings still had one more deadly weapon to launch at the Saxons before the opposing shield walls collided. When the two forces were still 20 paces apart from one another, small bands of maniacally crazed Viking warriors burst forward from behind the Danish shield wall and sprinted straight at the Saxon ranks. These lunatic bands were the Viking berserkers, the shock force of the Danish army. Okay, hold yourself together. Helmets on. Shield wall intact. The berserkers are coming. It's like, berserkers? We already had the flighting, then we had the spears, now we have berserkers? We haven't even clashed shields uh, yet. I mean, what is this? Before a battle, these men danced in small circles and through great concentration and an occasional hallucinogenic mushroom, worked their minds into a murderous craze, a mental state they referred to as berserker gang. They painted their faces to appear like hideously grotesque wild beasts and went either nude or wore only the skins of bears or wolves. Okay. <laughs> One description of the onset of the berserker rage recounted how the trance began with shivering, chattering of teeth, and a chill all over the body. Then the warrior's face flushed with color and began to swell as he was carried away by the rage. At this point, the berserker received superhuman strength and could bite through a shield or cut down anything in his path. So relentless was the murderous rage that berserkers could severely, be severely wounded innumerable times without noticing that they had been so much as scratched. Oh, okay. Here come the sprinting madmen. Hold the line, Christians. Adamant foreheads. Helmets on. Shields overlapping. Your king is in your midst. He will not lose this battle. But look at that crazy guy coming at us. No, look at your king. 
Stay true to your covenant relationship. March! For Guthrum, the real advantage of deploying the berserker bands was not in their ability to inflict significant casualties on the opposing force, but rather in their ability to instill terror in the front ranks of the opposing army as the two forces approached. You see what the enemy's tactic is? He's trying to terrorize you. The enemy works in terror. So don't be terrorized. <laughs> it's like, that's sort of the answer. Don't fall for his tactic. The enemy wants to cow you through fear and intimidation. He is a defeated foe. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. No weapon fashioned against you shall prosper. If God be for you, if God be in your shield wall, no shield wall can stand against you. Remember your king. Keep the helmet on. Hold up the shield of faith. Onward, march. The berserkers are going down. The berserkers in the story, I'm not going to go into it, were cut down so quickly that it shocked Guthrum. The Saxons were not intimidated. They'd seen this before. They were ready this go-around. Alfred learned something at Athelney. He learned how to fight God's way as opposed to allow the enemy to, to, de to de define the battle strategy. So here's the message for all of us. Fear not. Stand your ground and don't fall for the enemy's flighting, flying spears and streaking madmen. Dr. Merkel says this, and this is how we're going to finish. With one last shout, Alfred, the ring giver of Wessex, urged his men to be true to their vows and fired their hearts with courage as the Saxon line braced for the coming impact. Across the shrinking gap between the two armies, the last of the Viking taunts and the various pagan invocations of Odin swirled in the air and soon turned into one indiscernible, gore-hungry, red-faced, maniacal shriek. In that deafening roar of blood-curdling shouting and horrific howling, the two shield walls crashed into one another. And that's where we're closing. Oh, oh that's good. That's good. This is incredible. Who's going to win? I don't know. You have to come back next time. Next on Spiritual Lessons from Alfred the Great. The Battle of Eddington. Father, prepare us for battle. Prepare us to stand in covenant with you, with our helmet on and our forehead firmed up with your resolve. Spirit of God, work in us that fearlessness, that strength of decision, that assurance, that confidence that comes only from you. Oh, Lord, we crave it. We ask for it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.